I invite you to turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 1. The book of Romans, chapter 1. I'm going to speak slowly to begin with. Jonathan is away. And so Josue is filling in with the Spanish translation as I look over at Angel. And he was a little nervous. So I'm going to speak slowly. Let him ease into it. Shout out to Josue. He's in the back room there translating into Spanish his first time. And so we pray for him. The Lord blesses him, and it goes well. I also promised I wouldn't use any big words. I don't know what big means, but I'm going to do my best not to use any big, obscure words uh, today. Have you found Romans chapter 1? The introduction, first 17 verses. Last Sunday, we covered the first seven. Today, we're going to pick up in verse 8 and go through to verse 17. And so please follow along as I read from God's holy word. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you, always in my prayers asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Go all the way back with me to verse 1, right at the end. Do you see the phrase? The gospel of God. Now back into the text we just read, verse 9. Middle of the verse, the gospel of his son. Now verse 15, look at what Paul says there. I am eager to preach the gospel. Verse 16, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Verse 17, for in it, in what? We can fill in the blank. The gospel. In this introduction, Paul's main motif, main concern is... The gospel, because he is laying the foundation for the letter, for his entire epistle, the theme of which is the gospel. That's all this book is, 16 chapters. It is Paul's explanation, uh, perhaps his fullest explanation. It is Paul's exposition of the gospel. What I want to emphasize right at the outset this morning is how Central, obviously, it is to Paul's thinking. And by consequence, how central the gospel must be to our thinking. A stay focused on the gospel. As Christians, that is uh, an important commandment to follow. As Christians, that is an important, extremely important ambition. To stay focused on the gospel. 
In other words, to make sure in our daily experience that the gospel remains the main thing, that the gospel remains at the center of everything, to put it in slightly different terms, to make sure that our lives revolve around the gospel. Uh, One of my favorite illustrations, I have shared it here on at least two, maybe three occasions, but it's been a long time. So it's long overdue. I'm going to share it with you again this morning. One of my favorite illustrations, which illustrates just how important it is to keep the gospel the main thing. This illustration is as follows. Listen carefully to this. On Monday, Alice bought a parrot. It didn't talk. So the next day, she returned to the pet store. He needs a ladder, she was told. She bought a ladder, but another day passed, and the parrot still didn't say a word. How about a swing, the clerk suggested. So Alice bought a swing. The next day, a mirror. The next day, a miniature plastic tree. The next day, another shiny parrot toy. On Saturday morning, Alice was standing outside the pet store when it opened. She had the parrot cage in her hand and tears in her eyes. Her parrot was dead. Did it ever say a word, the store owner asked. Yes, Alice said through her sobs. Right before he died, he looked at me and asked, don't they sell any food at that pet store? (laughs) Now listen carefully. When we try to fill our lives with anything but the gospel, we are just like Alice's bird, starving in a crowded cage. Oh, did you get that? If you get nothing else, get that. That when we try to fill our lives with anything but the gospel, we are just like Alice's parrot, starving in a crowded cage. Our problem is what? We're easily amused. My friend, you are far too easily amused. I know that because so am I. My friend, you are far too easily distracted. I know that. It takes one to know one because I too am far too easily distracted. Oh, the importance of keeping the gospel at the center. The importance of ensuring that our lives revolve around the gospel. Uh, the starting point for this gospel, you know it. I pray you know it as well as I do, is simply this. We cannot save ourselves. You, my friend, cannot save yourself. And equally true, I cannot save myself. Uh, The damage is too extensive. And the damage is far too deep. You know, imagine I own a famous painting, uh, priceless. And I have that painting proudly displayed in the living room of my home. And one evening I host a dinner party. And one of my guests, for some unimaginable reason, pulls out a black magic marker and proceeds to scribble all over that priceless painting. Uh, He sees my displeasure. He hears my displeasure when I start to holler. And so what does he do? He reaches over to the magazine catalog. He grabs a Cabela's catalog. He tears out a page of some model there in the latest apparel of Hunter Orange. He glues it to my painting. And then he hands the painting to me and says, look, it's as good as new. What do I do? 
I start to back away because I realize I'm dealing with a man who is mentally unstable. And I begin to what? Ridicule him. Why? The painting is it's ruined. He cannot fix it. Oh, my friend, please understand that when it comes to our condition before God, we're ruined. There are no Band-Aid solutions. The problem runs too deep. Our sin touches every thought. Our sin shapes every desire. Our sin corrupts every word. And our sin taints every deed. That is the starting point for the gospel. Understanding that we cannot save ourselves. But praise God. There is salvation in God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. God punishes His Son in order to save us. God judges His Son in order to justify us. Now we arrive at the heart of the gospel. And His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, declared that no one enters into the kingdom of heaven. Unless what? Unless they become like a child. Unless you become like children, you cannot. It's an impossibility. Unless you become like children, you cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. Why? What is it about children? Why does Christ gravitate to children as exemplifying what it means to gain access into the kingdom of heaven? What it means to be saved? What it means to know sins forgiven? Why does he point to children? I was reminded of this powerfully this past week. Uh, little Emma, three years old. I was sitting in the living room. She was standing there, and she was watching a show. I'd never seen it before. A Super Y. You dads have no idea what I'm talking about. Some of your moms, oh, Daniel, no, Super Y. Interesting little show. So I have one eye on the TV show, one eye on the book that I'm reading. And Emma is standing there in the center of the living room watching this show. And suddenly I notice she's inching closer to me. Closer, closer, and closer. I look up. I look over at Super Y. And what's on the screen? It's a giant on Super Y. And so Emma is inching closer and closer and closer. And finally she's leaning her entire body weight on my lap as she stares at that giant, not too sure, on Super Y. Unless you become like children, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. That's it, folks. That's all it is. That is the way into the kingdom. The way into the kingdom is simply to rest in Christ. It is simply to acknowledge our sinfulness. It is simply to acknowledge our position before a holy God and what it means to be facing His his judgment, eternal judgment, the Bible says. And it is to understand that He has made provision for sinners in His Son, the Lord Jesus. And it is to rest in the Lord Jesus. It is to look to Him for protection. It is to look for Him for for provision. It is to look away from ourselves, completely confident in Him, His finished perfect work upon Calvary's cross. This is the gospel. And this is what has Paul's attention here in the introduction. This is what's going to have Paul's attention through the entire, his entire epistle to the Romans. Simply this, that this glorious gospel is The main thing. As a matter of fact, we can word it slightly differently. This glorious gospel is everything. It is everything to the Apostle Paul. 
And he so desires that it be everything to this church gathered centuries ago in the city of Rome. And he so desires by extension that this gospel be everything to us. And this is our great objective. This is our great aim as we make our way through this epistle in its entirety. It is, yes, to understand, understand, comprehend with our minds the gospel. It is to experience this gospel so that it becomes not merely concepts, not merely words, but it becomes a living reality which shapes and orients and molds and determines and touches every aspect of our lives. So last Sunday, we looked at the first seven verses, that first half of this introduction, and we focused in, you'll remember if you were here, on seven truths, seven aspects, if you like, of this glorious gospel. Truth number one, just quickly by way of review, the gospel originates with God. Verse one, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel is God's design. The gospel is God's eternal plan. His eternal plan to glorify himself, Father, Son, and Spirit. Truth number two, again from last week. The gospel fulfills a promise. See that in verse two, which God promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And so that Old Testament, that tricky part of the Bible, complex part of that Bible, sections that you dare not go because you get lost in names and genealogies and sacrifices and events and things. What is going on there in all that complexity and all those terms and things from centuries, centuries ago? The Old Testament is simply a a promise. The Old Testament points to and prepares for the Lord Jesus Christ. Third truth was this, the gospel centers on Christ. Verses 4 and 5, two truths in particular. First is his humanity, Jesus is a man. The second is his divinity, Jesus is God. He is fully man, he is fully God, one person. He must be in order to atone for our sins. He must be in order to be a substitutionary sacrifice on our behalf. He must be man, a man, fully man, just like you, just like me, body and soul in order to stand in our place. And he must be God, fully God, so that when our sin is reckoned to him, he is not corrupted by our sin. And when God's wrath is reckoned to him, he is not consumed by God's wrath, but is able to bear it in full, paying the penalty for our sin in full, freely, completely, and finally. Truth number four, the gospel requires the obedience of faith. Verse five, through whom we have received grace. And apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. How are we saved? We are saved through faith. We rest in the Lord Jesus Christ. But that's not a dead faith. That's not a lifeless faith. Yes, we're saved by faith alone, but it is a faith that is never alone. It is a faith that leads to surrender. It is a faith which manifests itself in obedience. The fifth truth, the gospel glorifies God among the nations, verse 5. Yes, they receive grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. Where? For the sake of his name, God's name among all the nations. And so God has this eternal plan to create humanity. And from humanity, every tribe, every country, every nation, every people's group, 
every language group to create a new humanity in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, thereby glorifying himself among the nations. Truth number six, the gospel manifests God's sovereign grace. Look what Paul says in verse six. You were called to belong to Jesus Christ. Verse seven, those in Rome who are loved by God. And thirdly, called to be saints. And so salvation is God's initiative. It's not our initiative. We're like a corpse, completely unresponsive to God. We're like a corpse, completely incapable of making any response or demonstrating any initiative when it comes to having a relationship with God. We are like a corpse in which God must breathe new life. God calls powerfully. God does not merely invite his people to salvation. He claims his people for himself unto salvation. And here we see his sovereign grace. And number seven, the gospel imparts grace and peace. We see that in Paul's benediction in the seventh verse. Grace to you. All grace mediated through the Lord Jesus Christ. And what is the result of this grace? It is peace. Peace with God. Seven truths concerning the gospel. Now what I'm going to do right now this morning is very simple. We are going to extend that list from seven to twelve. And based on verses 8 through 17, our text, I'm going to add five truths concerning the gospel. So seven was a nice even number, but now we're going to round it off with a dozen. And with these dozen, these 12 truths, we have our minds, we grasp this introduction in which Paul focuses on the gospel, and it will lay the foundation for what he's going to say subsequently in the letter. Twelve truths. And just like last Sunday, I'm going to convert these five truths into brief prayers. So here we go with truth number one, based on verse eight. The gospel causes thanksgiving. Eighth verse. First, says Paul, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Notice three things, just briefly. To whom does Paul give thanks? It's obvious. I thank my, my God. God has taken hold of the Apostle Paul. And equally true, equally important, Paul has taken hold of God. Uh, They will be to me my children. I will be to them my God. And so Paul, understanding the gospel, understanding God's grace, he gives thanks. Oh, every good gift, James says, descends from above, from the Father of lights in whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. All that we have, all that we enjoy of a material or a spiritual nature descends from God, and Paul recognizes that. I thank my God. Notice secondly, through whom? Does he give thanks? I thank my God. That's to whom? Through whom? Through Jesus Christ. In other words, Christ mediates Paul's thanksgiving. And so just as every blessing which descends from above descends through Christ's mediation to us, so too our prayers as they ascend on high, they ascend through Christ's mediation. This is a wonderful truth. I find this, personally speaking, a very encouraging truth. When I pray 
as I ought to pray. Oh, hear this. Hear this. When I pray as I ought to pray, the Father hears my prayers as if they were spoken by the very lips of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, we are a privileged people. When I pray as I ought, when I pray in accordance with God's precepts and promises as revealed in his word, and when I assail the throne of grace and I come before my Father, praying for myself, my family, you, when we intercede on behalf of one another, when we pray as we ought, the Father hears our prayers as if they were spoken by the very lips of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God through Jesus Christ. Thirdly, for whom does He give thanks? We know to whom, God. We know through whom, Jesus Christ. For whom? I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. This church in the city of Rome. Why? What in particular? Because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. It's their faith. He says that, your faith. Why does he thank God for their faith? Because even their faith is a gift of God. Even their faith, they owe, you you trace it back to its original cause. You trace it back to its origin and you find God. You discover God's sovereign grace. And so Paul, in very certain terms, I thank my God. I thank him through the Lord Jesus Christ, my mediator, through whom God hears my prayers. And here's why I'm thankful for you. I'm thankful because of your faith. Not merely your faith, but the fact that it is proclaimed throughout the world. Never been proclaimed in North America. What's he talking about? Never been proclaimed in Northern Africa at this point, in all likelihood. What's he talking about? Certainly never been to Australia at this point. What does he mean by world? By world, he is simply tearing down that distinction between Jew and Gentile and referring to the gospel as it has gone forth throughout the Roman Empire, regardless of national distinction or ethnicity, it has gone forth. And in particular, what has gone forth is the testimony of this local church in the city of Rome. And the faith of these believers testifying to God's power, God's grace, God's abounding goodness to them, their testimony has sounded forth. And so Paul here gives thanks to God. Here's my prayer request. I pray we will see, as we make our way through this epistle, I pray we will see that a lack of thanksgiving is a sign that we value something more than God. It is. I pray we will see that a lack of thanksgiving is an indicator that we are not God-centered. We are self-centered. Now, do not misunderstand me. I need to check that. All sorts of warning bells going off. That doesn't mean the absence of sorrow, brothers and sisters. It doesn't mean the absence of grief. It doesn't mean the absence of pain. It doesn't mean the absence of, of turmoil or anguish or anything like that. It simply means this, that even those seasons of deepest pain, Even those seasons of deepest sorrow, they are cultivated by, nurtured by, an overarching spirit of what? Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving and pain are not mutually exclusive. They can coexist. Thanksgiving and sorrow are not mutually explicit. They don't cancel each other out. They can exist happily together. That's what we're speaking of here. We're speaking of a thanksgiving that is so pervasive that even in those day, those, those, those darkest nights and those deepest valleys, when we're just holding on for dear life, 
even on those occasions and in those instances, we still have a glimmer of God's grace to us, and it expresses itself in this spirit of thanksgiving. I pray that the mercies of God will overwhelm us. I pray we will grasp that His merit eclipses our vileness. I pray we will grasp that His mercy covers our multitude of transgressions. I pray we will grasp that salvation is a river that flows only one way. It's all mercy. Salvation is a river that flows only one way. It is all mercy. I pray, and you're going to have to think on this one to really get it. I pray we will understand that no matter what troubles and difficulties we face in life, we never get what we deserve. I'm still learning that one. Probably will be till the day the Lord calls me home. That no matter what troubles and difficulties we face in life, we never actually get what we deserve. Oh, the cause for thanksgiving. When we consider the gospel and God's grace to us in the Lord Jesus and this river raging roaring river which flows in only one way from God's throne. All mercy, all grace. Truth number two. The gospel engenders love for God's people. Verses 9 through 12. Look at what he says in the 10th verse. Always in my prayers, asking. So here's his specific prayer request. Asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. And so Paul makes it clear he wants to visit Rome. He's never been there. He doesn't want to visit Rome so he can see the amphitheater and all these sorts of things. He wants to visit Rome so that he can see, visit with this church, these believers. He wants them to understand how earnest his feelings are. And so he backs it up. He supports it in verse 9 by appealing to God as his witness. Right at the start of verse 9. God is my witness. He backs it up by appealing to his own sincerity, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son. And so he's just putting it on thick here, layer after layer after layer. He wants them to know how he feels about them. And so he appeals firstly to God is my witness. And he appeals secondly to the sincerity of his own heart. When I pray, here's what I'm praying, that somehow, by God's will, I'll finally succeed in coming to you. And here we see something of his love, don't we? Here we see something of his compassion. Here we see something of his affection for these believers in Rome. Please understand, he doesn't know the majority of them. He's met some of them in other places. But the vast majority of people in this church are unknown to Paul. But why does he want to see them? He gives three reasons, beginning in verse 11. Number one, for I long to see you. There's the first reason. We long for something we are what? Lacking. We yearn for something we are lacking. And so the Apostle Paul, he views these Christians and fellowship with them as something he lacks. And therefore he yearns for it. He longs for it, expressing this desire. Secondly, I long to see you. He builds, still in verse 11, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. Do not think in terms of the spiritual gifts, what we identify as the spiritual gifts. It's a different expression here. It's not what he means. 
He's simply referring to a gift which is of a spiritual nature. That is, it is spiritual in origin. That is, it has its roots in the Holy Spirit. When we come to the 15th chapter, it becomes clear that what he actually has in view is his own preaching. That I long to see you, I long to be with you, that I may impart some spiritual gift to you. That is, that I might fulfill my gift as a teacher, as an apostle in your presence, and as a a result, you might be strengthened, encouraged. And then he adds something thirdly, verse 12, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged. So it's not a one-way street, two-way street, by each other's faith, both yours and mine. The gospel engenders love for God's people. He has this great ambition to visit Rome. He has this great desire to actually meet the people who constitute this local church in Rome. He describes it as a longing, a yearning, a thirsting, a hungering, intimating what? That there's something lacking on his part. He expresses it as an opportunity, what? Not as a resource, but as an opportunity to serve. See, far too often that's how we view the church. We view the church as a resource. I go to see what I can get out of it. It's not the Apostle Paul's approach. He goes to see what he can put into it. He views the church as an opportunity to serve. I desire to be there that I might be used by the Spirit of God to impart some sort of gift to you through my teaching that you might be strengthened. And then he builds on that. But look, it's just not one way. I want to be with you because I know what God is doing in your lives. And I want us to be mutually encouraged. I want us to be mutually edified by one another's faith by God's great demonstration of His power and His grace in our lives. And as we understand what God has done, what God is doing, it will strengthen us as we grow into the likeness of our head, the Lord Jesus Christ. Here is my prayer. I pray we will grasp that the church stands at the focal point of God's plan. It's not an option. I pray we will grasp that the Father has set His love upon the church. And he has predestined the church for glory. I pray we will grasp that the Son became a man for the church. He endured affliction and rejection for the church. He wept, bled, pled, and died for the church. He purchased the church with his own blood. He married the church, thereby becoming one flesh with her. He cherishes and cleanses the church. He bestows marvelous gifts and blessings upon the church. He guides and protects the church. I pray we will see the church as Christ sees the church. And I pray it will become the arena of our love. The gospel engenders love for God's people. Third truth is as follows. The gospel leads to evangelism. We're now in verses 13, 14, and 15. Look at what Paul says at the outset of the 13th verse. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you. So he has made plans. It has been his desire. But what? But thus far have been prevented. Prevented by what? Again, when we fast forward into the 15th chapter... Paul tells us there, he gives us a little more detail as to his plans. And he makes it clear that, you know, he has, 
He's finished his work in the East. If you think of the Roman Empire, if you can picture Europe in your mind, and you think of Eastern Europe and Western Europe, Paul, he has almost completed three missionary journeys, and he has been through what we would identify today as the country of Turkey. And he's been through Macedonia, he's been through Greece. And those three missionary journeys, he's used the city of Antioch, modern-day Syria, as his base of operations. And he's gone out from that church, he's gone out from Antioch, and he's gone through that eastern section, that eastern half of the empire, proclaiming the gospel, establishing churches, visiting those churches, spending time instructing and teaching in those churches. He wants to go west. He wants to enter into the western part of the empire. He wants to go to Rome in particular, but thus far he's been prevented. Why? Because his ministry was still required in the east. But in chapter 15, he states that he believes, he thinks his ministry there is winding to a close. He thinks he's about to wrap it up. That he served his purpose in the east, and he's confident now that God is going to send him into the western part of the empire. And he wants to come to Rome... Yes, he's already mentioned he wants to come to Rome because he longs to see them. He wants to impart some spiritual gift to them that they might be strengthened. That yes, they might be mutually encouraged and edified each by one another's faith. But he touches on a different reason. That he actually wants to go to Rome because he wants to use the city of Rome and the church in particular as he had used Antioch in the east. That just as Antioch served as the base of his operations in the eastern part of the empire, he now wants to go to Rome so that he can use Rome and the church in Rome as the base of his operations in the western part of the empire. And he has his eye on a place. It is called Spain. The farthest regions of the Roman Empire westward in those days. I want to use Rome just like I've used Antioch. And just as I've now evangelized in the east, I want to evangelize in the west. But I'm not quite done here. But when I am done, I'll be fully confident that God's going to open a door for me to go to Rome. And he's going to open a door for me to evangelize and witness the western portion of the empire. But I've been prevented thus far. And he states it there in the middle of verse 13. His desire to evangelize. In order, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I want to proclaim the gospel where Christ has not been proclaimed. I want to get into that region, all those areas where there aren't any churches, there aren't any apostles, there aren't any evangelists. That's where I want to go, that I might be used to minister, to reach, and to reap this harvest from among the Gentiles. He qualifies it with two interesting phrases. First in verse 14, I am under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians. That's a rather not nice way of simply saying to the civilized and the uncivilized. I am under obligation to both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Under obligation is the idea of a debt to owe. If Brian gives me $500, loans it to me, I have a debt to Brian, I owe him $500. But if Brian gives me $500 to give to Christian, I no longer owe that $500 to Brian. I owe the $500 to Christian. That's what Paul is saying here. He had been entrusted with something. He had been given a deposit. It is the gospel. And having been entrusted with this deposit by God, 
having been called as an apostle set apart by the Lord Jesus Christ, he was obligated, indebted to whom? Both Greeks and barbarians, civilized and uncivilized, wise and foolish. That's why I'm eager. That's why I'm anxious to come to Rome, that it might serve as my launching pad, so to speak, into those western regions. And he adds a second interesting phrase, verse 15. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Eager. Paul preached the gospel at Jerusalem, the religious center, and uh, he was mistreated. He preached the gospel at Athens, the intellectual center, and he was ridiculed. And he does preach the gospel at Rome, the political center, and he will be executed. Not a very popular message. Not a very popular man. Paul knows that. And yet he states it clear as day in verse 15. I am eager. I am anxious to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Here's the truth again. The gospel leads. It's not strong enough. The gospel compels. That's better. The gospel compels us to evangelize. Here is my prayer. I pray we at Grace Community Church will feel Paul's sense of obligation. Mercy experienced is mercy proclaimed. Mercy received is mercy dispensed. Mercy enjoyed is mercy shared. I pray we will grasp that only those who share the gospel really know the gospel. I pray the mercy of God will stir in us eagerness, earnestness, fearlessness, and willingness to proclaim God's good news of salvation. Truth number four. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. Paul's words, not mine, 16th verse. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes To the Jew first, so historically speaking, it came to the Jew first and then to the Gentile or to the Greek. To the Jew first, also to the Greek. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why would anybody be ashamed of the gospel? What is it to be ashamed about? Indulge me for a moment. Just think about it. Uh, The gospel, before it is healing, is insulting. The gospel, before it is ever saving, is downright offensive. Now, the message of the gospel is telling a man, telling a woman, look, you're a sinner. That's offensive. Not only are you a, a sinner, not, not only is it that you have committed sins and done things um, unacceptable in God's sight, it, it's deeper than that. The problem is this, you've never done anything good in God's sight. That is offensive. You've never, my friend, your entire life, if you're an unbeliever, you've never done one good thing in your life as far as God is concerned. Are you offended? You should be. That is offensive. I've never done one good thing in my life. It's offensive because it tells us what? God's wrath hangs over us. That we're condemned in His sight. It's offensive. Why? Because it tells us that in order to be saved, in order to be forgiven, it requires a bloody sacrifice. It requires a terrible, mangled sacrifice upon Calvary's cross where another suffers the penalty for my sin. It's offensive because it tells me 
that when I follow this man, what he's inviting me to, what he's encouraging me to do is to follow him in what? In sorrow, in service, and in suffering. The gospel is offensive. And yet Paul says here what? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Yes, it gives offense. Yes, it insults. Yes, it alienates and estranges. Yes, it creates division. Yes, it creates problem. Yes, people will accuse me of being arrogant. People will accuse me of being closed-minded. People will accuse me of being tolerant. Paul understood all of that. Paul knew all of that better than anyone. But what does he say, verse 16? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? He's very clear on what follows. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That when the preaching of the gospel... Words are accompanied by the Spirit of God. God is pleased to manifest His power in unparalleled fashion. How? By bringing sinners out of darkness into light. By bringing sinners from a state of death to life. By transferring sinners from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of Christ, God's beloved son it is when god chooses when god is so well pleased the proclamation of the gospel becomes his very power by which he saves men and women those who believe i pray here is my prayer that we will know god's power in the gospel he has liberated us from sin's slavery he has redeemed us from sin's penalty He has broken the chains that bound us. He has destroyed the prison that held us. Salvation is a work of God's limitless power from start to finish. I pray we will understand Paul's words much later in this epistle. If God is for us, who can be against us? Truth number five, verse 17. The gospel reveals the righteousness of God. Look carefully at what he says. For. So here's why, specifically, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. For or because in it, that is in the gospel, something is revealed. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. What does that mean? He explains himself by quoting from the Old Testament. He explains himself by going to an obscure passage in the book of Habakkuk, chapter 2, verse 4. Right here, he quotes it. The righteous shall live by faith. We have a problem. God is righteous. And his righteousness is revealed in his law. And because of his righteousness, we are indebted to God. And we owe God these two huge debts. First of all, we owe him the debt incurred for the penalty of our sin. We've broken his law in innumerable ways, countless ways. And as a result, we've incurred a penalty, a debt, judgment. Not only that, but God requires of us in his law obedience. He requires righteousness. And so there's a twofold debt. There's a negative side of it whereby we owe a penalty because we've disobeyed. And there's a positive side of it whereby we owe obedience. What a creator demands of his creature. And so we owe this debt. And here's the good news of the gospel. That the just live 
The just are freed from this debt. The just are brought into a relationship with the living God. How? Through faith. Faith in whom? The Lord Jesus. Why? Because the Lord Jesus has paid this twofold debt. He has suffered my penalty. The penalty I deserved upon Calvary's cross, removing my guilt. He has lived a perfect, righteous life, whereby when I believe, I rest in the Lord Jesus. What was mine is counted as his, my sin. And he has paid that penalty in full. What is his is counted as mine, his obedience. And I in Christ have fulfilled what? The righteousness of God. That is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. I pray. I pray we will see that by virtue of our union with Christ, we stand righteous in God's sight. Not merely the negative, brothers and sisters. Not merely the removal of guilt. Not merely the removal of the penalty, not merely the removal of condemnation, but the bestowal of that which is so precious in God's sight, the very righteousness of Christ in which we stand clothed in his presence. I pray we will see it. I pray we will see that by virtue of our union with Christ, we are righteous in God's sight. I pray we will see that all the obedience needed to be accepted by God is found in Christ. I pray we will see that all the righteousness needed to be received by God is found in Christ. I pray we will understand Paul's words that having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. That is the gospel, the main thing, the central thing. Here is truth to make us wise. Here is light to guide our way. Here is hope to calm our fears. Here is joy to ease our sorrows. Here is water to quench our thirst. And here is food to satisfy our hunger. Our Father, we do now pray for your illumination by the Spirit that you would grant us understanding of these things, that you would enable us to see what Paul saw all those years ago, all those centuries ago, and that we would see the glories of the gospel and your goodness toward us in Christ Jesus. We pray, our Father, that this gospel would indeed be precious to us, that it would be the pearl of great price, that it would be that great treasure for which we are prepared to forgo all else to secure and to know and to hold and to possess. We pray, our Father, that our lives would be lived in accordance with this truth. We pray that we would grow daily in our understanding of your grace, of your mercy, of your power and of your goodness, and of your wisdom as revealed in your gospel. And we pray, our Father, fervently, On behalf of those in our midst gathered here this day, as of yet stand outside of Christ, the gospel but a puzzle to them, the glories of Christ but a dim reality, 
the forgiveness of sin and the hope of eternal life, but, but mere words, empty of significance or meaning. We pray that by your grace you would work powerfully in their hearts. May you be pleased to manifest your sovereign grace among us, shining your light upon their minds, upon their hearts, showing them that there is salvation in your Son, the Lord Jesus, the one whom you have given, the only name under heaven by which we must be saved. And so we ask you, bless us now, bless your word as it's gone forth. In Christ's name we do ask it. Amen.